0: Stromness. I had long decided that when I was 60 I would retire and Helen agreed, especially as we'd both read studies that suggested staying on beyond that curtailed doctors' lives. We decided that we would stay in Orkney to start with and look for a house in Stromness. Even though it was still two years away from retirement, we asked Derek to start alerting us to various possibilities. Dr Cromarty was the district medical officer and his stepmother lived in what had been his father's practice house. She fell and broke her ankle and decided that she would have to move. However, she couldn't afford to move unless she could sell her house. Having viewed it, we offered to buy it, saying that she could live in it rent-free while she found somewhere to go. She accepted this, as did her trustees, and we paid £25,000 for it. Soon after the deal was completed she sent us a letter outlining the repairs that needed to be done straight away. We did not argue but arranged for the work to be done even though in the long term it was unnecessary as we were going to gut the house and refurbish it. The surveyor we employed suggested that this would be a good idea and he recommended a builder, Frankie Johnston, whom we agreed should do the work. We presumed he would be re- reliable, although. There are often hidden associations between individuals within island communities, but we still had to decide whether we think the folk involved looked honest. We explained the situation to him and after Mrs Cromarty moved out, he could move in. We gave him a completion date that he could aim for. The surveyor agreed to oversee the work to its completion. A problem arose because the government had decided that house repairs that were VAT exempt would now have to pay it to avoid this for it would have been several thousand pounds. We paid Frankie in advance and he presented us with a bill before the VAT date. He was quite happy to do this and in the end it did not cause any problems, although some of our friends were a little sceptical. Helen paid the house periodic visits once the work had started. She would fly over in the morning and Frankie would meet her at the airport and then drive her over to see the house. Because he knew she was coming, it enabled her to answer any queries and it also stimulated him to have done some more of the work. He usually met her with his lorry and she found herself occasionally involved with the goods he was carrying. She had one journey with a male urinal on her lap. The work progressed slowly but on time She found Frankie was easy to work with and receptive to her ideas. Frankie's wife, Margaret, had problems with him at times because he would drink too much and he could be abusive and violent. One evening, when she had had real problems with him, she called the police and they locked him up in a cell for the night. He was mortified, for all of Stromness knew about this, but it acted as a wake-up call and we don't think it was ever repeated. Episodes like this damage reputations, but not as much as elsewhere, because island life sometimes leads to frustration and drinking, the amount you drink being dependent on those you are with. Often the full effects happen an hour or two after the drinking ends and all the alcohol is absorbed. There is a general tolerance of drink problems because they are so prevalent. Once the house had been gutted and rewired, it then had to be decorated. The old man we asked for an estimate gave us one for £3,000. We agreed that his firm could do the work and we chose all the components of the decor. When we had the final bill, it was 6000 We were annoyed at the discrepancy and quarrelled with them about the amount. The house was frame construction with planks and when the larger bill was presented, we went in to see what was what. We found their man in the hall picking off bits of Hessian that had been put over the planks before it was papered. He had been doing this for four days and had only done about one third. It was a useless process and we were paying for it by the hour. Frankie tore a strip off the boss for not properly supervising and allowing this nonsense to go on. I asked Frankie to cover the whole area with plasterboard with a time element of about half a morning This was then primed and covered with wallpaper. Helen had chosen wallpaper with a pattern comprising raised areas. And we discovered that children who came to the house loved to sit and pick off the little excrescences. In the end, I felt sorry for the old man. He was past his prime and was embarrassed by his optimistic estimate. And the son was not very friendly to us because of our pointing out to him that his bad management had cost us a lot of money. In the end, he reduced the price to about 4500 and didn't charge us VAT, which meant that we were not too much over the estimate. We were unable to find anywhere to buy lights and light fittings, as the ceilings were low and needed recessed lamps. In the end, we were recommended a firm that supplied hotels in Queen Street, Edinburgh, so off we went and found everything we needed. We ordered over £1,000 worth of all kinds and the electrician had a field day. He said that he really enjoyed installing it all as it was largely new to him. We were determined to have adequate lighting. We also got Brian to make us the kitchen with the latest in ovens and surfaces. When he had finished it with Frankie's assistance and everything was installed, they sat at the window and invited passers-by to take a look because it was state-of-the-art. They had left the step into it too high so Frankie made two steps instead of one because one old man had nearly fallen over as he went inside. We increased our visits to the house as we got near to the moving date, and this paid off because we were able to shortcut some of the procedures and nip in the bud some of the bits that were being installed without the finish and quality we wanted. We probably drove Frankie mad, although he smiled his way through it all. We were installing an air to water heat pump for the central heating but the fitters arrived with a damaged lid about two days before our move. However, there was a concerted effort by the plumbers, electricians, builders and installers, and the job was done and the top replaced using express delivery. The removal company had to take our furniture from the Westray house, put it all into a container and then into a removal van for it to be unloaded into the Stromness house, where Helen was waiting to direct where everything went. I was helping and carrying a pile of books into the house when I was interrupted by our neighbour, Leonard. He was very keen to show me a photograph, and he didn't seem to notice that I was holding a heavy pile of books. The photograph was of the outside public loo at the end of our garden. In the past, a half-circular wooden projection had been erected out over the sea, with a hole in it for folk to relieve their full bladders. It was no longer there, but Leonard had found the photo and wanted to show it to us straight away. We did not have any sewage arrangements, the outflow from our lavatories being untreated into the sea from a pipe at the end of the garden. Our grandchildren thought that this was great. They would perform, pull the chain and then rush into the garden to watch the delivery of their evacuation coming out of the pipe. During the next few years the whole sewage system of Stromness was updated and a vacuum system installed, necessitating digging up the entire main street and installing pipes to join up our outflow with a cistern on Sutherlands Pier. The junction for this was in our garden under the drying green, made up of an enormous round concrete pipe, eight feet in diameter, with a built-in small galvanised step commonly seen in the sewage installations of large housing estates. It meant we would have a large manhill cover in the green. It would have accommodated half a minicar. I joked that if Helen disappeared, they would know where to look for her body. Leonard got very excited as we had large JCB diggers and lorries and equipment of all sizes working away for several days up in the main street. There was a deep trench with pipework exposed and everything had to be replaced and reconnected. In some places, a plank would be put over the chasm to help pedestrians get into their houses. Derek, who was visiting patients using these planks, managed to fall into the ditch and turn up with mud all over his suit. Susie, his wife, was not amused. She said if there's anything he can fall into, he will. Leonard and Jessie were our neighbours. We did not see Jessie at first and local opinion hazarded that she was under the floorboards. However, one day I saw her at the window and could tell that she was grossly myxamodematous from a thyroid deficiency. I asked about her when talking to Leonard but she refused to see the doctor because she didn't want an operation. I explained that it just needed some tablets. So she went to see the doctor and is now quite normal. Leonard was very nervous and had never worked. Apparently he was able to grow plants and was recruited by a seeds business to go and work for them. He had to fly in, which he did, but the strain gave him a migraine and so he came home. He was a Walter Mitty character and romanced to our tourist visitors. I found him holding forth to an admiring group to whom he was recounting his adventures as a sea captain. None of it was true. He bought a camera with a built-in flash and began to use this at every opportunity, leaning out of an upstairs window, clicking away. He then became known as the flasher of Stromness. Leonard had to go into hospital three or four years after he had moved next door, so he was passing blood in his urine due to a kidney cancer. It was treated with radiotherapy and disappeared. He said he was given the option of letting go at that or having it removed. He elected to do no more, but this turned out to be a poor decision. As he started fresh bleeding, his belly swelled and he became paralyzed with spinal secondaries. When he learnt that he was ill, he took to his bed and friends duly visited, bringing small offerings such as grapes. He was not feeling ill, so gave up being in bed and totally bored and set out to redecorate the house instead. Each day he went out with Jessie, exercising their unruly dogs. These were a pair of cocker spaniels He also made a garden in the base of an outbuilding that he knocked down. His paralysis eventually made him bedridden so I bored holes in his bedroom wall and rewired the telephone as well as a connecting cable to a heater. Jessie had to cope with this mainly on her own although the district nurse called every day. Helen supported her a lot but she sat with her dying husband all alone for two nights listening to his noisy breathing. We heated up and dispensed the food for those who came back after attending Leonard's funeral. It was an odd situation, for we were in many ways culturally alien to them all. However, it went well and Jessie rebuilt her life, becoming totally independent in enjoying her freedom because Leonard had dominated her life and kept her chained to him. She always sends us a card when she's on holiday, usually visiting her sisters in Scotland. The dogs were far too powerful for her, and sometimes she could not get them to return home, at which point Helen would drive out and help catch them, bringing them all home again. They were not really getting enough exercise. Jessie had a daughter living in Kirkwall, and later on moved there to join her. Our neighbours on the other side had a small kitchen window through which they could observe our comings and goings. Below this we had the heat pump. There were three old ladies, relatives of Captain Robbie Sutherland. One was a widow who had been married to a bank manager. They were all sisters and happily lived together, but friendly and helpful and pleased to see us when we visited them for any reason. Next to them was the mother of Starling, so called because he was very intelligent and efficient, but an impulsive alcoholic fisherman when young. When he came over to Westray, he rode a motorbike he came off once or twice and we stitched up his wounds on various occasions. So he was an old friend and we knew his mother. At the end of the pier next to ours lived Captain Robbie. He ran the coal business and when he sold it, he was left with the building where, we, where he stored the coals. So he built himself a house there. He also taught navigation at the navigation school and was prominent in the fishermen's Cooperative and Alcoholics Anonymous. He had had a serious drink problem when younger, which had broken up his marriage. But years later, he re-met his childhood sweetheart, by then widowed, and they've lived together ever since, both now in their late 80s. In our little neighbourhood, we all got on well with each other and the extended families. Stromness maintained that it was the cultural centre of Orkney, and we had a modicum of intelligent talent. Poets, authors and musicians lived there. We used to look after visiting musicians, performing in the St Magnus Festival, housing them for a few days, feeding them or just providing bathroom and changing facilities. We hope they all enjoyed their visits and we certainly enjoyed having them. Some famous names came to stay and one of them bought his million pound cello, casually sitting in my study. We did lock the door at night but that was to ease my worries rather than being strictly necessary. We had various festivals during the year in Orkney. Music was provided by the Folk Festival and St Magnus Festival Classical, together with, in the autumn, the Science Festival. Shopping Week was full of different events and marching bands, a favourite with the young, and we also had the Art Society, providing music concerts and drama. Strongness also had a debating society separate male and female. The female side died out, but amusingly could not officially end as they could not raise a quorum to end it. They have now joined the men, some of whom were very reluctant to embrace the ladies in a strictly figurative sense. What helped was the fact that neither society was attracting new members. So the post of president male had to be filled by members taking it on for the second or third time, The ladies, therefore, found themselves immediately appointed to office. Those who drew and painted set up their own local groups, as did those interested in drama, choirs and groups of musicians. This included the school contest, for the Orkney schools had intensive music teaching with fiddle playing, big band, jazz and solo piano. The islands are twinned with hoarder in Norway, and there is a continued interchange of interested groups and performers. During our first few years in Stromness, I did some part-time NHS work for which I got paid within the limits set by the pension regulations. This was to do with audit, and we set up a committee composed of nurses and social workers, as well as doctors. I'm not sure that it accomplished a lot, except to increase awareness and help in the initiation of some projects. Usefully, we bought with audit funds a laptop that the surgeon used and a programme that analysed statistics of surveys. It was expensive but meant that it was possible to look at and undertake surveys in-house. I resigned after four years as at that point I decided to retire completely. But I did two or three surveys entering the data on my computer and also literature surveys that were sent out for doctors to look at. This led to discussions about treatment and the use of antibiotics as well as asthma and diabetics. It was not rocket science but it did produce some agreement and consensus and we had regular meetings with members of the Scottish Office audit section to discuss our work. Helen was involved in the art events and joined up with Christine and Daphne to take part in an open university course. She also joined an artist group in Stromness Academy School regularly entering paintings in exhibitions at the Peer Arts Centre. This had been initiated by Margaret Gardner, a retired school teacher involved with the St Ives painters, Ben Nicholson, artist, and Barbara Hepburn, sculptor, among others. She bought a lot of their work when it was cheap, eventually finding herself the owner of an expensive art collection. She decided to give it away and looked for a suitable venue. London dearly wanted to have it, but she was fond of Orkney and presented the collection to Stromness. Hence was born the Piers Arts Centre, created from a barn on one of the piers. Her collection became the permanent exhibition, and in cooperation with the Scottish Arts Council, rotating exhibitions are displayed at regular intervals throughout the year. Margaret Gardner visited from time to time. She was a splendid woman lived in London and swam in the Serpentine in all weathers, even when she was 95 years old. All the events had their amusing side, like when King Hakon visited from Norway. He was due to visit the art Centre and they were supplied with wine and canapes to entertain him. He was coming by air, but word got round that there had been some problems and that he would not be visiting. They suggested that those present should imbibe the food and wine. When most of it had been eaten and drunk, the telephone rang to say that he was able to come after all. There was a mad scramble to get at least one presentable place of food, compiled from all the leftovers, and to have a bottle or two of wine, for fortunately some had not been opened. His Royal Highness must have noticed the flushed, slightly tipsy faces and sensed a general air of merriment, but he didn't comment. The King was also due to inspect the lifeboat, but the men had similarly been told he wasn't coming. So while he was in the Pier art Centre, the local pubs were being scoured to find the lifeboat crew. Eventually, they were all present and correct. The King had come over from Norway to present a tapestry to the Queen Mother in St Magnus Cathedral, where it was to be hung. We sat some rows back and witnessed the ceremony. It was a geriatric royal occasion, and they both got quite muddled. After the ceremony, we decided to return via the back road. But as we got to the junction where we were supposed to turn left, the road was closed because the Queen Mother would be returning from having lunch with her cousin, the Lord Lieutenant of Orkney, Colonel McRae. A weedy youth was in charge of holding back the traffic. We were in a row that comprised a lorry, a very smelly dust cart, two other cars, and then us. We waited and waited and then eventually a Rolls-Royce came into view. It was not the Queen Mother, but King Hakan, now on his way to visit the Norwegian cemetery where Norwegians killed in the war were buried. He thought we were there specially to greet him and he gave us a vigorous wave as he swept past. We continued to wait. Eventually the youth was challenged. Had the Queen Mother gone by anyway, he pedalled off into the town to find out and came back triumphant and breathless to say that we could go. We began to move into the road to be met by two furious police outriders who were travelling ahead of the royal car. We stopped and the car went by. The Queen Mother, fast asleep, hat awry, jaw jag sagging and mouth wide open, so she never saw us, and we all began to think of her known liking for gin. Perhaps this was the cause of her sleep, although for an old lady, an afternoon kip was a natural event. The visit had other repercussions, like the royals being entertained in a little restaurant in Stromnus called the Hammerveau. It was run by an Irish couple who were excellent cooks. Unfortunately, they used the contents of the till to live on, so they had no reserve and had to be declared bankrupt. The bailiffs had been in and stripped out the contents. As it turned out, there was nowhere else capable of supplying a quality meal, So the bailiffs took everything back and the meal was provided. The guests left and the bailiffs returned. Orcadians are veteran pragmatists. Helen had a friend, Christine, whose husband Harkus had a herd of Aberdeen Angus cattle. Hing Harkon was interested, and so it was arranged that he visit the farm. In preparation for this, it was decided that the bull should have a spring clean, and so he was duly washed and groomed until his coat shone. He was then put into a pen to keep him clean. As the time approached for the king's arrival, news came through that he had to leave the farm out of his schedule because of fog. Harkus was very disappointed, although they still attended the lunch and were introduced to the king. However, not having been to the farm, the king was not able to relate to Harkus and Christine in the same way. The bull was returned to the field, and at the sight of him all the cows ran away. Helen was visiting Christine a few days later when the postman arrived, delivering a letter from Buckingham Palace. Christine decided not to wait for her husband and opened it. It was a letter thanking them for all their trouble and apologising for the fact that the visit of King Harkon had to be cancelled. Apparently news had got to them all at the palace about the bull's reception by the cows. Christine said that the episode had another benefit because they were having a new porch that was never likely to be finished but it was in time for the royal visit. Helen knew many of the cattle because she and Christine took chairs into the byre and drew the cattle when they were in for the winter. They had to avoid considerable bovine interest in them and long tongues wanting to lick their paper and materials. It was good fun and a good laugh. We both tried to enter an exhibit in the Peer Arts Centre's open exhibitions. Anyone could exhibit, but only one piece was allowed. No expertise was necessary, and this encouraged a lot of children to join in. Helen had no problem because she was producing drawings all the time. In the past, I had entered some ship models I'd made, but when Helen asked me what I was going to submit on this particular occasion, I did not have anything. Paint something, she said. So I had a look through our photographs and found a picture of Rachel sitting in the sea, playing with some shelves in a bucket. I drew and painted her, and Helen agreed that it was showable But now she insisted I would have to have it framed. I had not bargained for this, and it cost £5. To try and defray the costs, it was put up for sale for £10. The gallery worked on the basis that they would have 20% of the money received. In Stromness at this time, we had a very strange man who told us that he was a burnt-out schizophrenic. He did various tasks, one of which was to polish the brass knob on the door of the bank opposite. Needless to say, it was gleaming. While he was doing it, he would look around at the world and finish in a trance-like state so that one small knob would require an hour of his time to reach this stage of perfection that he wished to accomplish. He was very direct and outspoken, coming up to me and saying, "'I liked your picture, and it will sell.' I was mildly flattered, and Helen was very amused because when I told her what he'd said, she asked, "'Do you know what he said to me?' He told her the frame was too good for the picture." As it turned out, I could have charged much more because the picture was sold immediately. We didn't know who had bought it until some months later when I was away off the island and Helen was invited to a dinner party given by one of the doctors and his wife. My picture apparently surfaced for discussion during the evening and the doctor said that he had bought it. It was hung in their downstairs loo. Mind you, ever since my sale, I had claimed to be a professional artist. Helen sold quite a lot of her pictures and photographs over the year so she was able to observe my efforts with tolerant amusement. The schizophrenic knocked at our door one day to announce that he was leaving Orkney. I've been here seven years, he said. I always move on after that time. He was a nice chap, still medicated and making the best of a poor hand he'd been dealt by fate. The Peer Arts Centre staged many exhibitions, one of which was the work of Sidney Nolan, the Australian artist. We did not know he was there until we were looking at one of his compositions, saying that we were unable to understand it. We were not being very complimentary, but this chap standing nearby who turned out to the artist started to explain it. We were a little embarrassed, but he bore us no ill will. The picture was in fact a drawing of a white woman with an Aboriginal getting roots to eat out of a pond. The lady in question was the wife of a Stromness sea captain, the boat having been wrecked. She survived, but the rest of the crew were lost, including her husband, and an Aboriginal boy saved her life by showing her how to live off the land. His pictures sold for 70000 and upwards. He told us that he believed that Uncle Reggie was much underrated. Uncle Reggie had become president of the Australian Academy, but mainly painted portraits. It is possible that his Jewish background was a factor here. Who knows? Orkney occasionally had very severe storms, One blew all the hen huts away and killed a thriving egg business. Until this happened, they were exporting millions of eggs. Also, before meximatosis, they exported hundreds of rabbit carcasses, posting them just with a label tied to their feet. After the rabbit and egg industries failed, a lot of work was put into building the economy again. Parallel with this, it was discovered that cattle rearing, which had not been very successful in the past, was now made possible by the work on trace elements. Without these, copper, manganese and cobalt, the animals became sickly and did not thrive. Orkney can grow grass and so the economy switched into cattle rearing. The islands becoming a nursery breeding calves to be fattened up by Aberdeen farmers. Later, EU regulations destroyed the small mixed farms, preventing the sale of cheese by a farmer unless it was the sole product and followed the regulations. At the same time, the abattoir on Westray had to be closed because new requirements had to be met. Orkney subsequently built a state-of-the-art abattoir, but then had to have all the animals for slaughter fed to it. This meant that the farmers on the island had to send their animals away for slaughter and then buy in their meat. As can be imagined, this took a little while to establish and be accepted. The storms sometimes made journeys a problem. One ferry on its way to Aberdeen was feared lost but had managed to ride the storm out. Another incident involved an elderly lady who got onto a boat to be taken from one island to another, but she was eventually found exhausted, tied to the mast of the boat in the Norwegian fjords. There was also an apocryphal story after the hen house blast of a hen hut floating in the fjord. Over the years, Helen joined the Flower Club and the Women's Institute and I, the Stromnest Debating Society, as well as taking a course to obtain a boatman's licence and learn navigation. The class is being run by Captain Robbie Sutherland. They were part of the school, the Stromness Academy. I passed the exam which entitled me to take a boat with 250 passengers round Scarpa Flow, a slightly ludicrous situation. The interesting part of obtaining this licence was that the course was entirely theoretical with no test of boat handling ability. This has subsequently been corrected and all the abilities are examined. Helen also took part in art projects and various courses that arose, sometimes just for a weekend. For instance, how to make etchings on a copper plate, which was taught by a Greek man, Mr. By Tortoise. I had a little workshop in the garden equipped with a lathe, a bandsaw and a pillar drive. So I did a lot of wood turning built two dolls' houses as well as making model boats, so we kept busy. I also made a replacement tap for Derek's homebrew cask and several copies of antique furniture draw handles out of the mahogany bits left from the old piano remnants we found when we moved in. The workshop had been the playhouse for the children of Dr Shaw, father of Robert Shaw, the actor. When they were living in the house, it was pine-lined but could flood to the depth of about 18 inches so everything was arranged above that height. When we moved in, it was full of junk, and so I arranged for the local council to send a lorry and remove it. They instructed me to put it all in our close in a pile next to the street. When the lorry turned up the next morning, there was very little there, and the locals had silently removed it and found a use for it. Had I known that would happen, I could have saved myself a collection fee. Someone always has a use for other people's cast-offs. In Westray, the pier had various items that stood there week after week. The pier master told me that if you had your eye on something you felt you could use, the first thing to do was to move it sideways several feet. If it was not moved back a few days later, you should move it again. The exercise had to be repeated after which it had not been returned to its original place. You could take it. If after a week or two, no one had appeared at your door demanding it back, you could assume full ownership. Joe Creelman on Westray did that with a fishing net. But as he was putting it over his strawberries, a fisherman turned up to claim it back. He was slightly embarrassed, for he was the UF minister. Joe was also on the other end of another scenario. He had a horse in the manse Garden, which went missing one day. He looked around the island to find it, spying it in a farmer's field. He knocked at the door of the farm, and the farm produced a rope, helped him make a halter, And Joe went off back to the manse leading the horse. When he got there, the horse was there. He'd claimed a totally different one. He therefore took the horse back, the farmer explaining that he'd wondered what Joe wanted his horse for. I continued to do odd surgery locums for the group practice but eventually gave it up because I was beginning to find that I could not instantly remember the name of a drug I wanted to prescribe and had to resort to looking it up. The main street in Stromness was not built to make more than a horse and cart. Cars could negotiate it, but it was not wide enough for passing side by side. Renée gave us a lesson in picture framing, and at the age of 90 she was bashing in nails and sawing frames with vigour. We were left reeling, not just because of the tour de force of her practicality, but also being overwhelmed by a diarrhoea of facts that could not stay in our minds. She told me that she was not going to die naturally, as it were, she was going to meditate herself away. Renée's meditation group met one or two afternoons a week, and she also had visiting meditation practitioners, plus in different countries, an entree into what seemed to be a worldwide school of thought and would be offered hospitality. The last we heard was that she was in an old people's home, having just celebrated her 100th birthday. One of the problems for Sarinda was finding a job. He invited us to the family home in Coventry. The family having bought two council houses and merging them to make one large dwelling for them all. They had a rich curry type meal that was delicious. His brother, the dominant member of the family worked in the Jaguar factory, but jobs were rarely offered to Asians. This was quite clear as none of their friends and they were all well qualified ever got an interview, being turned down at the point of application. It mattered not who was the best qualified as race discrimination was exercised by the employers. Surinder eventually managed to get a job at a school for children with special difficulties. Surinder came back to Orkney for George Mackay Brown's funeral. He had no funeral clothes so I lent him a shirt and a black tie. Someone else managed a coat and trousers and he looked very smart. Frustrated by his job seeking here, Surinda went to Hong Kong, where he found employment easily. He rang us from Hong Kong one day, quite out of the blue. He wanted to tell us that Renee was having her 100th birthday soon, so that he would send a card. We thanked him. He said he was depressed because he had met a girl who had cajoled him into marrying her. He was not happy and was seriously considering divorce. We took his telephone number, wrote it down but lost it, and we've not been able to connect up with him since. He was very adaptable and friendly, so we feel he will have found his niche being less stigmatised in a much more complex multiracial society. To write the day-to-day events of our lives is impossible and would be tedious to read. Fragments of experiences and personalities around us, events and happenings, create the real tapestry of life. Each area where we lived, each neighbourhood, each population played their part yet varied in their ability to tract comment. The Orcadians themselves are a lovely people, lively, humorous, immensely practical and intelligent, with precise pronunciation of words that gives an appealing lilt to their speech. They are intensely pragmatic and have widely traveled population due to seafaring, so are not narrowed by isolation. They're also part of the Norwegian empire for 400 years and there is still much Norse blood coursing in their veins. They do not feel Scottish. While you live in Orkney, it is the centre of the world, and few outside events really matter. Let others have their strikes, crime and quarrels, for they rarely influence island life. We were having problems in thinking about our living so far north and away from the children. A factor in this was Mike's mother, Eve, who came in her 60s to live in Stromness when Mike and Penny became Orkney school dentists. Being on her own in the south, she was determined to move closer to them and so bought a house near us in Stromness. She had a combative personality but was nevertheless a warm and affectionate friend with many artistic talents. The latter endeared her to Helen. Eve was the last child in her family. Her father was an English doctor married to a French woman living then in France. Eve was a premature baby and did not thrive and in fact the family feared they would lose her. She kept little down. Her mother could not breastfeed and bottled milk was not providing nourishment. In desperation, the family goat was used to provide food, squeezing the milk from the teeth straight into the baby's mouth. From that point, she began to grow and flourish. Eve's childhood was much like any other, but when the war came, because of the English connection, she and her mother were put in a concentration camp by the Germans. Eve, by this time, was in her very early teens. They were starved which left a very deep impression and subsequently Eve always had to be surrounded by an excess of food. She lived on her own and one day appeared at our door with three carrier bags, each containing a frozen bird, chickens and a turkey. She asked me to put them in our deep freeze for her. It was a totally incongruous mountain of flesh but we kept them for her for several months and in the end she used them up. Eve was also jealous of her rights and equally easily quarrelled with her neighbours over the silliest things. However, because of her fears about nourishment, she was overweight and not altogether physically well, although she made light of this. She joined in Stromness' artistic life and was able, by a curious process of her own invention, to preserve flowers better than anyone else. She was always going to write a book about this. One weekend, we had a serious storm with very rough seas, Outside Eve's house was a paved stone pier. She did not realise there was any problem until she fell through a hole in the pier as one of the stones fell through. The violence of the storm had washed the foundations away and so there was nothing supporting the paving stones, a cavern having formed below. Fortunately for Eve, her shoulders were too large to allow her to fall through and finish up in the sea below. However, she was trapped because there was no way she could lever herself out. Workmen working on a nearby house saw her plight and came to the rescue. It transpired that she'd fallen out with these builders because they had used her roof as a support point for their scaffolding and she said they were damaging her tiles and would make her roof leak. They tried conciliation but she enjoyed the challenge of fending off bullies and she kept popping up through her skylight to watch what they were doing and insisting they did it without her roof being involved. As one of the men said to me, we were tempted to either leave her there or push her right in. Thankfully, they didn't and contacted us. We found her a bit shaken, but we concentrated upon assessing the state of the pier and trying to work out where it was safe. After much head scratching, she was eventually extracted. Penny and Mike loyally supported Eve, but she was a burden, for she expected them to stick with her through thick and thin, right or wrong. Mike was quite enraged by her at times and there was a love-hate relationship and Penny often and Helen sometimes acted as mediators or made soothing noises. Mike and Penny left Orkney because Penny's father became seriously ill and her mother needed a lot of support and help in coming to terms with the situation. They moved to Devon where her parents lived. Eve stayed in Strongness among the friends she had there. One morning Eve had a stroke It removed her ability to speak and she could no longer be communicated with. She had no paralysis but was not thinking clearly enough to write down what she wanted to say. She had stereotyped responses, mouthing imaginary words and waving her arms in circles so we could not understand her at all. Mike came up from Devon and decided to wait a week to see what she could do and whether she would improve. She did not. But the problem when we consulted a solicitor about getting a power of attorney so that Mike could pay her bills and manage things for her was that she had to consent. And if she could not, this led to legal complications. She very occasionally had more lucid moments. I suggested to Mike that if she had a lucid phase, I was not her doctor but could certify. I would be willing to issue a certificate to say that she understood what was proposed, get her to sign the paper and have the lawyer there as well. The day came when she clearly conveyed she understood. We all assembled and the deed was done. Mike could not keep coming up to Orkney, so she moved to a home near them. She had an electric wheelchair and the nursing home allowed her to use it until she disappeared. They found her cold and shivering, having unwisely gone down a hill. She was stuck because it was beyond the chair and her own capabilities to get back to the home. She died not so long after this, but I have a romantic image of her probably untrue, speeding down the hill, scarf flying, shouting, tally-ho, beaming with pleasure, and the eyes alight with the fun of it all. She was a woman of spirit. This episode made an impression on me. Mike had had a difficult time travelling back and forth, and it struck me that we were inflicting this on our family if we stayed in Orkney and developed an illness or became socially compromised. The first result was that we took out an enduring power of attorney, so that if we could not communicate, this could just swing into action. Now that we are domiciled out of Scotland, we have a Scottish legal instrument that our solicitor at first seemed doubtful about. He did not entirely reassure us, but we think it will be workable in spite of, or due to, the legal money vultures. Another factor that came into the equation was that Frances had announced she was having twins, Helen was immediately worried that if we were a long way away, she would not see them and so miss out on their early years. This added to the debate about a move south. Other factors, including the Orkney weather and the barrier imposed by living on an island, where travelling on a whim is almost impossible due to the restrictions of the sea.